Welcome to the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. Nova have a venture building model that is unique in the SEIS and EIS fund market. Today, Andy Davidson talks about its origins, how it works in practice, and why he thinks it's a model that will be more popular in the future. If you joined the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe through all good podcast services or following the link in the show notes. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So I'm delighted to welcome back one of my favorite guests that we've had on the podcast, who is Andy Davidson, who's CEO at We Are Nova. Welcome back, Andy. Thanks, Brian. It's great to be back. I'm flattered that I'm one of your favorite guests. Um, it's been too long. It has. We had you back on episode 10, which is almost two and a half years ago. Really that long? And, and the nature of the pandemic is that we don't get to see each other very much, unfortunately. This is true. Yeah, well, hopefully if it's two and a half years, I'll probably have some really interesting and probably controversial opinions to offer. <laughs> we like controversy on this podcast. We don't yeah. get enough of it, in my opinion. But we're going to start with something less controversial, which is in case anyone wasn't listening way back in when we had episode 10. Do you want to tell us a bit about yourself and how you became involved in EIS fund management? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I guess I've been involved in EIS fund management kind of quite recently, really. I think we launched our fund in 2019, but I'm not from a kind of financial services or wealth management background you know, when I actually used to actually you know, do stuff that could be described as work for a living, I was a software engineer originally. And I kind of went from being a software engineer to being a software entrepreneur back kind of in the the, the early noughties, really. And I built a tech business that was probably a bit ahead of its time. We actually had, a, a, it, was a, it, was an, it would, have, would have been called EdTech nowadays, but that didn't exist back then. And it did this interesting thing in that it offered a service to people over the internet. So it was to universities and you didn't actually install anything at the university. It was all delivered over the internet, which confounded people at the time, particularly university IT managers. But of course, it's now called SaaS. And uh-huh. if you happen to have a SaaS business, it's got a ridiculous valuation <laughs> attached to it. But at the time, SaaS didn't exist. But we did reasonably well. And, and um, we had a few UK universities signed up. We went to America, um, which was fabulously exciting because I was in my late 20s, um, which shows how long ago this was. Um, and we made a sale in America. And then we ran out, ran out of cash. And British venture capital didn't understand what we were doing at all. And we went bust, and it was that was probably the start of the journey, really, because I think I kind of looked at very quickly, looked at all the fabulous things a small team of people had done, and kind of how how many you know people talk about failure, the business had failed, but how many times we we'd not failed in that business, and and the learnings that we had, and it struck me immediately, the thing to do was to go again, and I had a great team of people, and they believed in me. And we kind of set about pretty much the next week, next week and we kind of looked at some of the things that had gone wrong uh, and some of the things that we got right. And we thought, well, how can we mitigate risk? And one of the things that occurred to us very quickly is that actually our team was only on one horse, which is this particular software product. And you know, you hear a lot in venture capital, people need to focus, et cetera. But the, the reality is, is we could have been on 10 we could have built a number of different products and really de-risked our business. Uh 
So that's what we set about doing. Um, we went about, we met a load of people, found 10 founders, had one core team of people and built 10 different products that went into 10 different businesses. I then encountered EIS for the first time because I, I was trying to find angels that would invest in these businesses. Mm-hmm. I built a small consortium of angels. We raised half a million quid during 2007 and 2008, which you know, obviously the end of 2008 was a terrible time to raise money and to have raised money as well. Yeah. <laughs> but um, interestingly, probably I think eight out of those 10 companies failed relatively quickly. And one of them um, went on to actually finally exit for £53 million in February of this year. Unfortunately, we were long out, but I think we'd gone in at a pre-money valuation of 175 grand, so along the way, <laughs> very well out of that. And I'm still very good friends with the original founder, um, who's done very, very well out of it. And that was the start of our business model, really, which is, which is it's a venture-building business model. Mm-hmm. I mean, you probably hear me mention and talk about venture building a lot. And actually, I think for your listeners, it's watch this space. I think venture building is going to be instrumental in how tech startups are founded and built and scaled and funded in, in the next 10 years. It's going to be a big thing. But again, you know, a bit like our our SaaS product that didn't know it was a SaaS product because we were too early. We didn't know we were a venture builder. Mm-hmm. We just had a different approach. Yeah. Now there's all sorts, I think there's, there's, a, there's a global venture building network there's hundreds of companies that are venture builders yeah and i hear different names because you hear the phrase studio is one that i hear quite a lot which i think venture studio some... startup studio venture yeah. builder there's um, and that's one of the big problems actually is that there's about 10 different terms for things that are broadly similar and people in the space don't actually know about each other you know we we thought we were doing something that was pretty unique until about three years ago. And then we realized, oh, hang on a minute. Like the first one of these was Idea Lab that was founded in 1996. Mm-hmm. We were just busy kind of head down doing our own thing. Yeah. Well, certainly if you if you read, um, I know you're a reader, if you've read Sebastian Mallaby's book, some of the stuff that early venture capitalists in Silicon Valley do, were doing was venture building. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, there's nothing new under the sun, is there? It's just things become fashionable, unfashionable, and the vocabulary changes. But but we are now a venture builder. And I think coming back, trying to, uh, this has been a long answer to your question, but how do we get involved <laughs> in the EIS fund management? I guess, you know, with, with our first 10, we probably rode roughshod over any sort of regulation, mainly because we weren't aware of it. We found a group of people who wanted to invest the IS in this portfolio. We did the deals, and I guess they were all single company deals. And if anyone ever asks me, I was never involved in the advising of those deals or the execution of them or anything like that, because obviously at the time, I'd never even heard of the FCA. So that was when yeah. we first, we first did, did it. And then, obviously, we were reasonably successful. And the problem is... If, if 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 you if you invest at inception, you, you're probably thinking it's ten years before you're going to get an exit. Yeah. So you, you've got you've got measures of success that people can look at and go, oh, this looks like it's going on the right track. Um, we were able to expand our angel network. Then we encountered a couple of super angels. Then we encountered an EIS fund manager that did a lot of co-investments with us, mm-hmm. and that kind of as our business was scaling and our appetite to build ventures was scaling, our requirements or ability to consume and deploy capital was scaling Mm -hmm. and it was probably in 2019 we thought you know we know enough about this space we've got enough track record our data was fabulous that we'll we'll start our own fund so in 2019 nova growth capital 
um, was born, which is kind of a sidecar fund to our, our, our venture builder. And we're in an interesting point, actually, in, in our life cycle in that we're just, we've just closed off Nova's third portfolio. So our first portfolio has performed incredibly well. You know, it contained this winner that I just talked about that exited for mm-hmm. three million. The data on on Nova Portfolio One shows a TVPI. Um, I think it's five point four three. Mm-hmm. I mean, for people who don't know what TVPI is, it's total value versus paid in. And if it's five point four three, it means if you give if you gave us a quid, you've had five pound forty three back. And even over ten years, that's still a pretty good return. Yeah, exactly. Particularly when you've had, you know, obviously this is about EIS. You, you know, you've had your income tax relief on the way in as well, and half of the things we back failed. So you've actually had income tax relief on the failures. So it's it's a fabulous return. Our second portfolio has now got thirty five companies in it. So it's an order. It's like it's four times the size of portfolio one. We're currently at a TVPI of about three point two five, though the vast majority of that's unrealized we think we'll realize the majority of it in the next three years um at the moment we think our tvpi would be about five so again it'll be it'll be fabulous um um but but it's a much bigger portfolio than portfolio one Mm -hmm. and we're just at the start of fundraising for nova portfolio three so we are We'll probably ideate with founders about 60 startups who will probably deploy a reasonable amount of capital. We're more than 100 grand, say, into mm-hmm. 30. So we're going to raise 12 million pounds in three closes over three years. It's likely to be EIS qualifying. Um, and we'll build 30, um, 30 ventures that our SEI, Nova Growth Capital's SEIS fund will then invest in. Mm-hmm. And then Nova Growth Capital's EIS fund will invest in. And we expect a similar we expect similar sort of performance, really. We think we'll we'll get an EIS qualifying TVPI of five over a probably a seven to eight year period. Although we have probably should say something at this point along the lines of past performance is no guide to the future. Yeah, exactly. I know I've got a great one. I've got a fabulous one that we should say because it's the top of it's at the top of my website that the FCA makes us put there. What is it? If you've listened to me now and you're interested and you come to my website, right at the top it says don't invest unless you're prepared to lose all your money. I mean, what the actual fuck? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like, thank you, FCA. <laughs> let's let's scare, make the first thing anybody reads is scary. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, that's what, that, that, that's what, that's who we are and where we've come from and what we're doing next. I guess. Okay, so you mentioned this phrase of venture building, and you said it's many people maybe understand different things. What do you mean by venture building? I suppose it, it is it is actually still many different things to, to, to many people. As I said before, there's some, there's vocabulary. That, so some people go, we're a startup studio. Other people are a venture studio. Other people are a venture builder. And people are trying to, cap, tr- trying to categorize different types. They're not all the same. Mm. Broadly, the idea is it's a factory that creates startups. And like factories, there are different types and they have different features. But mm-hmm. broadly what happens is you cast the net very wide mm-hmm. to look at opportunities to create startups. Now, some people do that. You'll have venture builders that are part of corporates and it's almost like a corporate innovation and they'll look 
inside their business. They'll look at thing problems within. So if you're a utilities company, you know, electricity mm-hmm. company, maybe looking at stuff that within the energy supply chain or something. You know, so they're quite focused. It, it might be in Google. You've got this one day a week, famously, if you've got a good idea for a project. That's probably yeah, similar yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah mate, mate, that. That's more. I'd say that's that, that that's not as a bigger commitment as someone actually having a, a venture studio, you know, or an innovation lab. But it's a great. It would be. It's a great way if you're a corporate and you're trying to have a venture builder to see the top of your funnel. Like, where are we going to get our ideas that we're going to put into our corporate innovation lab? If you like, well, let's give people Google time, you know, half a day a week or whatever, and then once things look a certain way, we might accept them into our program. Ours for we, we are a, we're a kind of a founder focused venture builder, so mm-hmm. we have a program where we find founders that we want to work with. And what is that program? Um, we well, we call it a venture readiness program. Mm-hmm. And is that like training or? Yeah, well, actually, I'll come to it in a minute because I think I'll, I'll finish answering what eventually because it's probably easier. So, so you spend, you cast the net wide, you find a lot of ideas that you might want to ideate around. You create a framework for deciding things that you're going to take forward. And you you have a centralized team of people that you'd find in a startup. So, you know, you'll have uh-huh. software engineers is the obvious example. We also have hardware engineers because we do some hardware technology, uh-huh. product management, um, lean thinking, marketing, all the back office stuff like finance, legal, and HR, or all the things that you'd find in a startup, you have having a centralized team. Mm-hmm. And what you do is you deploy that team or, or subunits of that team again and again in, in, inside the, the, the set of ventures. And after a period of time, you end up with a business that, and it depends on your criteria, you're kind of prepared to spin out of the studio. Mm-hmm. So you might start off with, with a guy who's a doctor who you've encountered who's got a great idea in med tech, and you spend some time with them, you validate the idea, you build a prototype, you find some users, you launch a product, you might get a little bit of monetization and you go, right, okay, that's something we can now spin out into its own business. And our venture builder owns a share of it. The founder does. You probably introduce, mm-hmm. well, you don't probably, you, you introduce external capital at that point. So Nova Growth Capital's SEIS fund would invest. Mm-hmm. And you slowly decouple that, that startup away from the mothership. So, you know, they might make their first hire, mm-hmm. but they might still be consuming some resource from the mothership. But over time, you, you kind of, the, the two become separate things. And, you know, it, it, it works. The, the data shows that it works. There's, I think I showed, shared a couple of papers with you by email earlier this week. Yeah. Because I know you're an expert on many things to do with EIS, but I thought if we're going to talk about this. We probably need a bit of a deep dive. But broadly, it's still early, you know, in, in the scheme of things. As I said before, if, if, you, if you back a venture right at its inception, you, you really can't start, you know, counting your chickens until you're 10 years in. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of venture studios that out there that aren't 10 years old. But broadly, they, they look to massively outperform any other mechanism of funding, of funding mm-hmm. startups. So, yeah, it's been around for a while. It's got many different names. Um, we've been doing it. Since 2007, we've got a lot of experience. We've got great data, um, and I, I think it's it, it's 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 a big deal, and it's going to become a bigger and bigger deal. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting because within the sort of EIS fund space, you are unique. 
you are the only person at the moment yeah. who has any ISSS fund that sort of invests in this area. So I think it's worthwhile digging into this a bit more and, and, and finding out a bit more about some of these mechanisms and how they work. Yeah. So, so you mentioned about casting net wide. And if I think of a normal EIS fund manager, they are essentially looking, or even SIS fund manager, they're looking for existing companies. So quite often, there's companies already marketing themselves. They've got this little network, uh, whatever. Process you've used, presumably that's different because you've got these folk who are at the ideation stage. We see a lot of that. And it, it's very rare that we get involved with businesses that are there. Um, mm-hmm. we, 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 we are pre-seed, really, as we're, 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 we're Nova interacts mm-hmm. with the founder. One of the challenges, I think, is that if you're doing seed investment and you run an SEIS fund, and we did, you see loads of decks, and and they're all there's nothing to do. There's very little to due diligence. There might be a company, there might be a small mm-hmm. product. They've got very limited traction. The people who work in it don't work full time. There's like there's loads of venture risk. There's loads and loads of risk, and we it, it's difficult for us. Even though people have made some progress mm-hmm. and might be on the right direction it's hard for us to price that risk rather than us just starting at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Although that might sound, it's easier for us to just to just start at the get-go. We're not having to buy other people's mistakes in a sense, if that, if that makes sense. So we run what we call a venture readiness program. And we run, well, we run a number of programs and we, we the, the digital first. So we'll you know, run digital marketing campaigns, maybe aimed at certain sectors or certain professions, Looking mm-hmm. for people who are at the point where they're thinking about starting a startup. Mm-hmm. And we've tightened things up a bit now, but I think in like 2020, 2021, we had like 3,500 applicants. So <laughs> we see loads of nonsense, you know. Yeah. And presumably, if you're doing the pandemic, you would see even more than you would Yeah, yeah. I mean, but, lots but of people was, looking but that, for alternatives. But that was great, you know, because the pandemic, we've probably spoke about this before. I've spoke to other people about it. We had a load of people that, you know, were benefiting from this fabulous scheme called furlough. <laughs> they were kind of sat at home twiddling their thumbs. And, you know, obviously the pandemic caused a lot of people to really challenge what they were doing with their lives. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think a lot there was a lot of people going, well, I was always wanting to do a startup. And, you know, now's the time. I've got time on my hands and the world's just been turned on its head. So we did see more deal flow, but we also saw more good deal flow, which, which mm-hmm. was good. And... Anyway, out. So you're probably thinking, how the hell do you deal with three and a half thousand applicants? <laughs> what what happens is, is you give people homework, right? So, so our our program is almost like we call it a venture readiness program because it allows people to understand whether they are ready for kind of venture investing or venture building, and it's an educational piece. There's a whole lot of content that people consume about how Nova works about what we'd expect of them, about what things they need to do to demonstrate to us that they've got a concept that should be interesting mm-hmm. to us and that we should back. And they kind of do or they don't. So they consume the material and then within the context of their own idea, they produce the deliverables that we talk about. 
And what sort of things are you asking for them to for them to do? What what, what do you expect them to produce to make them of interest? In so, so we we have a, a kind of couple of kind of artifacts that that we we hang our hat on, and it's all from the lean movement. So you know, uh-huh. people will have heard of Eric Reese's book, The Lean Startup, but there's a whole there's a whole like canon of business thinking around lean. Uh, I think like almost the lean startup has become like a classic almost now. I think it was published in 2009 or something. But so we have a, there's a lean canvas. It's like a one page business plan, um, value proposition design um, canvas, um, business mm-hmm. model canvas, and they're all ways that people can articulate very succinctly what what the, the problem is they're trying to solve, who the user mm-hmm. is, how they're going to try and solve it, um, what are the riskiest assumptions about the their proposed business. And then we kind of educate them about how they construct experiments. That, that so you, you, you kind of work out what your risk, riskiest assumptions are about your business and then mm-hmm. run tests. Um, and ultimately, you build a user panel. So you, you end up going through it. You end up with like an elevator pitch for the problem that you're trying to solve. Then you have an, and, and you get a whole lot of people that are going, yeah, I'm experiencing that problem. If you can solve it for me, I'm interested. Mm-hmm. Then you end up with almost a solution pitch. We're going to solve your problem like this. And if a whole lot of users are going yeah, we're really interested in that solution. Then you kind of go to the next phase. Mm-hmm. This probably sounds a bit abstract, but so I'll give you a really good example of, of um, one that everyone should be familiar with. So most people will have heard of Dropbox, right? The file mm-hmm. sharing platform, yeah. yeah. multi decacorn um, It came out of Y Combinator, which is not a venture builder, but it's an accelerator program. It's probably the most famous one in the world in Northern California. So... They use an experiment called fake it till you make it, which Mm -hmm. is a mechanism of working out whether there's user demand for your product. So what they did is after they'd worked out that file sharing across multiple devices was a problem for people, they articulated what their solution was going to look like. So they articulated Mm -hmm. what Dropbox was going to look like. And they built a little video that showed how Dropbox was going to work. They built a web landing page. And then they ran a small marketing campaign and they pretended the product existed and they asked people to sign up for a free trial. So they probably spent about $5,000 on getting the video done, putting the landing page up and mm-hmm. running a small digital marketing campaign. And within a couple of days, they had like, you know, 150,000 people who'd registered as want to trial. <laughs> so at that point, we're armed with that data. You are immediately investable. <laughs> you know, there's yeah. other stuff you've done, you, you, you do, and I'm a little bit far away from the coal face now. So there are people in our product management team that are cringing that I can't give better examples. But there's <laughs> examples where you know, just asking people what they're going to pay or putting different landing pages up with different payment points, you can kind of work out what the market will pay for a product. Yeah, because it seems to me that's that's one of the key things. Because when we you know, when I talk about people, particularly when it comes to product market fit, yeah, which is kind of you, you I'm sure you're going to come to shortly. Yeah, the, getting that without people actually paying money—that's the key test. Yeah, I think. And, and this is it. You've got to. You, what you're trying to do is you, you're trying to work out right. One of the riskiest assumptions about my business. Mm. You stack rank them, and then you conduct ex- small experiments that cost you very little money that allow you to. You, you, evidence as well as you can that actually you've mitigated that risk or you have a strategy of mitigating that that um that risk uh, and as you say product market fit there is is like almost like the holy grail almost for if you've got a venture builder um and you're trying to work out whether you're gonna you're gonna 
you know, spin a, a business out. And for, for the benefits of users, product market fit is where you, you have a number of fits. So first off, you might have founder market fit. So is the founder uh-huh. of this business, do they have the correct domain knowledge in order to help you build a product for that market? Then you uh-huh. have problem fit then you've got trying to work out whether you've got solution fit so does the solution solve the problem for the market when when you've got product market fit it's when you've turned your solution into a product and the market is pulling the product out of the business so you've got so much demand from the market that you're struggling to keep up with supply now i've got a great example of this with my portfolio at the moment really excited about this business it's called accurate it's a health tech business it's in hydration management for um, the elderly. So I'm going to get all the numbers wrong. But I think what I want to do now is that dehydration is the biggest cause of falls in um, in the elderly, the single biggest cause. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's something like 40,000 preventable deaths a year within the NHS just to do with people with kidney contraindications um, and poor hydration. So massive, massive amount of, you know, avoidable loss of life, avoidable cost for the NHS. And at the moment, hydration is managed in hospitals and in care homes with a pen and paper and a clipboard. How much has Mrs. Miggins drank today? So this business has got, it's it's a health tech solution. It's got a cup, it's Um, sensor-based. It's been, I won't bore everyone, it's built so it can work in an NHS or a care home environment. Basically tracks what people drink, reports back to a central console and allows the the, the nurse and staff to manage holistically the like hydration levels across a whole load of patients Mm -hmm. and they just can't like they can't keep up with demand even though you'd think well the care home market under pressure for price you know price cost etc they can't and they're so they've absolutely got product market fit and their problem is is trying to get enough of these hydro cups manufactured in time so they've got ten thousand of them coming into the uk in july and they've almost pre-sold most of them before they've arrived so that's a great example of product market fit where you go wow how we've got a tiger by the tail how do we keep how do we keep up with with, mm-hmm. with this mm-hmm. yeah and then that's that, that, that that's a diff, that's almost like a different phase where and and this presumably is one of the problems you've got when you got new new people coming in they've got these founders they're very skilled and as you say, they, they might have found the market fit. They're skilled in their domain. They have a skill set. The doctor knows all about the doctor area. But the next stage of business requires different skills or different management. Yeah, exactly. How do you design the product? How do you build the engineering layer? Who who, who protects the IP? You know, all of, yeah. all of these kind of things. So that's where, within a venture build, you've got all of that skill set already. I mean, mm-hmm. the, I should point out that this business I'm talking about, Accurate, it currently employs three people. <laughs> right. And it's because it's current it's de- decoupling from our mm-hmm. from the venture builder. So it's a, it's an absolute example mm-hmm. of success in this space, you know, yeah. you know. They, but presumably as part part of that it ha- more than three people have worked in this business because you're yeah, saying yeah, 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 you've yeah. your hardware guys and, and marketing yeah, guys or whatever. Exactly. Uh, yeah, there's been a whole host of people that have that have, have, have worked on it. And also what's really important to note is that if it wasn't for our venture building model, this business would have died two years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we backed it in 2016, 2017, I think. Um, and so obviously it's a hardware product. You've got to get C market. So it kind of got ready to go into care homes right at the start of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And that's it. It's just like, right, well, nothing's happening now. 
because you, you know you can't get, even get into a care home, never mind try and sell them something. Mm-hmm. And so they kind of had to go on hold for almost an 18-month period before they can make sales again. But of course, during that time, we just go, all right, well, we're just going to check, we're just going to deallocate your team on, on, onto some other projects that are not inhibited in the same way by the mm-hmm. pandemic. So you've turned down all the cost in the business. The business has got no burn at all. And, you know, the founder needs some pain and looking after, but it's tiny, it's tiny you know, you're talking about a handful of thousands of pounds a month of cost. Mm-hmm. And so you just put that business on life support. And then lo and behold, pandemic mm-hmm. solved, dial, the, dial it back up again. And, and away you go. In a, in a and the founder was perfectly okay with that. I mean, in a, maybe he didn't have much option. But. She she didn't have any opportunity, any, any other option. You know, I mean, it she, she, it wasn't it wasn't okay. Almost okay. It delighted is the word because it's <laughs> in another set of circumstances. You'd have a team of ten or twelve people. You'd be burning fifty thousand pound a month. What do you what do you say to your investors? Oh, we're still burning fifty. That we want to burn fifty thousand pound a month, but you but. You, you know that we're not going to actually be able to get into a care home because you're not allowed in right? For, until this pandemic thing goes away. Do you, do you mind just funding us at £50,000 a month for an unlimited period of time until someone gets a vaccine? It's just a non-starter. Yeah, um, but presumably, I mean, the, 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 perhaps the, the slight counter-argument to that is that that was genuinely exceptional circumstances, and hopefully we're not about to see something, another, you know, the, the next variant isn't about to shut us all down again or whatever. So yeah. in normal course of events, that's, yes, it's nice under those circumstances, but it's not. But it's, um, it's, 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 actually, it's actually really demonstrative of one of the things that you can do quite a lot. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't believe that startups can be accelerated. Some things take their own good time, you know. And runways for startups are... That, well, they 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 are not particularly variable. You know, <laughs> you've got a headcount, you've got a group of people. They need paying every month. Your uh-huh. biggest cost is people, and you know, you might raise some money have a twelve month runway, and okay, something happens and you tweak your cost base. You're not going to get your twelve month runway down to less than nine months. You, you, uh-huh. you know, and the beauty of our business model is that you can have a business that hits a wall from a, a, a fit perspective, like. They've not got solution fit right. You know, they just not. They, they got their problem right. They built a user panel. They've got some product, but they're just not getting the traction mm-hmm. that they need. And you, we don't want to back it again, based on the data. But the founder is still very engaged, mm-hmm. and you can kind of go, "Well, look, I tell you what, right? You've got a, a certain amount of assets here that you can make progress with. You've got some mm-hmm. product, and." Armed with certain bits of evidence, we will reallocate resource back to you again. So go, go off and make it happen. So so effectively the founder there could go away for six, say, right, okay, it's on pause with you. I'll go away for six months, tinker around, sort something out and come back and say, right, okay, I've solved this problem. Yeah, made progress. yeah we'll, we won't say no to someone. We'll go not yet. We'll go mm-hmm. not until even. So we don't like your user traction. You know, we, we want to see, when, when we're talking about tra- traction, it might be in terms of people that have signed up to use a free version or whatever. You know, the, the, the line has got to be going up and to the right. And if it stalls, that's not a good sign. So we might come back and go, come back and tell when you've sorted traction out or you've only got one, you might be selling to, to corporates and, 
you've only got I'm so you're selling to law firms. Well, look, you know, you've signed up one law firm and then you've got another one, and it's been nine months and we've not got any more. Get get another five law firms signed up to a free mm-hmm. trial and we'll engage again. The business doesn't go bust. No people lose their jobs. The resource just gets dialed down. And people either do or they don't. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, so some founders just throw their hand in and disappear. Some come back three months later and with what you want and you're like, brilliant. Some come back the next week and it's, it's fabulous. <laughs> it, takes out, <laughs> it takes out a massive amount of risk, you know. Mm-hmm. So with, with, with Rebecca and her business, she just had that foisted upon her by the fact that all of her customers were mandated to close their front doors, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and presumably someone involved in the medical profession, she had confidence that at some point the doors would be open um, and, and eventually she would get back in. Entrepreneurs are optimists, aren't they? I think, you know, every all, all of our founders thought that we would get a vaccine and lo and behold, we got one and that, you know, so. <laughs> <laughs> so how easy is it to sort of find founders and develop them? Because you, you, you come up with people a bit raw, maybe, you know, not experience, you know, what, what sort of support can you give to, not just in terms of sort of sending a, a user interface designer in to help with the website, but in terms of actually the founder themselves, because they need to develop along this path. So there's, there's, lot, there's lots of things that, that, that I guess we did. And I, to, to, there's, yeah, there's founder-specific mentoring. I mean, one of the things we should also think about is that there's team mentoring. So one of the other benefits of our approach is, if you've got a small startup and you've got a software engineer working, you've only got one software engineer. Well, who's who's mentoring him or her? Do you know what I mean? If you if you if you're early or middle of your career and you're a larger organization, you'll have a line manager or there'll be a technical lead or so who's doing people's mentoring more generally in a small startup that employs four or five people? You know, they they, they probably have to join external community groups mm-hmm. or maybe yeah. professional organizations and with our organization, you know, with, with at the moment we've got about 90 people that multidisciplinary, really, really experienced. So the team that's working on a startup, they kind of have an each member as an internal line manager within Nova that's much more experienced. So you've got that. We're learning lessons about startups right across our our kind of estate, if you like, right across our portfolio. And there's that. That comment that that there's almost like a tacit knowledge that builds up across the whole team and can be shared by team members across different startups. So that's a really important kind of off balance sheet asset in a sense that all of mm-hmm. our portfolio companies benefit from. Mm-hmm. And presumably, you have to be proactive about that. That does, does that kind of happen naturally, or do you actually have to put structures in place to share that knowledge? It's a bit of both. I think, you know, I think great people are always interested in developing their own career and like more deeply or more broadly. And so you end up with communities of practice kind of growing up within any kind of organization. And our organization is incredibly entrepreneurial. It is really sort of startup focused. It's very agile. It's very flat. So that happens anyway. But yeah, of course, I mean, we have a chief people officer who's part of our leadership team and that we we do spend time working out right how do we how do we allow this kind of knowledge organizational knowledge to disseminate between everyone in the company and um, so that you know we'll have there'll be certain 
you know, the engineers will have a session once a fortnight where someone takes a deep dive into DevOps or security or, you know, so they've kind of got communities of practice within our business that all of the people who then work within our startups all benefit from. The founders, diff- I guess, are different. And we start mentioning them right from the outset, really. And we're teaching them about lean because that's, that's important. Um, and we teach them about how Nova works. Uh, and one of the things... We're doing two things. We're, we're, we're educating founders and we're mentoring them, but it's also part of our selection process. Uh-huh. So we can't change to work with a founder if they want to work differently from us. Right. You have your process. It's not quite your way of the highway, but yeah. If yeah not exactly, exactly. So we've got to find people that look at what we do and go, Oh yeah, I get that, and that works. Yeah. And we also need to, what we also need to be careful of is that people aren't paying lip service to us because mm-hmm. people kind of look at it and we've got to go right. I see. I can go through their program, um, convince them that I, I can work with them. They'll back me. I'll get my MVP built, and then I, I don't want anything to do with. It. I'm going to just go and raise capital on my own. And and like life's never that simple, and that never never works. <laughs> yeah. So we've got to be careful of that as well. And obviously, great entrepreneurs are great salespeople. But we, we need to find founders that look at what we're doing and see real value in that and see how mm-hmm. it complements them. Yeah. And if we find the right founders, it really is a match made in heaven. And if we don't, it's a disaster, mm-hmm. a complete disaster. Yeah. It just yeah. And presumably in. then, you, I mean, I, I know a lot of fund managers talk about looking for founders who are going to listen. Um, they might not agree necessarily with what the, what the fund manager says, but they're at least going to listen. And your process probably filters that out kind of automatically. It's, yeah, 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 it does. It, I mean, there's a lot of stage gates for getting rid of people that are could well be fabulous founders, but are not going to work in the, in, the, in, in the way that we work. And mm-hmm. so we want people who listen. We want people, you know, the whole kind of the strong opinions loosely held, you know, people who are, who are, mm-hmm. who are kind of going to look at the data and go, yeah, all right, yesterday I was absolutely fanatical about doing this, but I've just looked at the numbers and, and you're right, yeah, it doesn't work, so let's just move. So it's getting it's getting people who are aligned values-wise with us as well. What We, we have a weekly town hall meeting. with it's, it's with our staff members, and, and I get asked questions, and we, we always talk about the quality of founders that we can attract into our programme, because that ultimately is what... You know, that, that's what drives success. There are other factors, but the founder's really, really important. And someone said to me, you know, well, it's the way that our business structured and, you know, the amount of equity we take and the, the amount of rigor we go through. Are we going to attract the best founders in the world? Someone said to me, like, you know, it's like if we were a football team, would we attract Lionel Messi? Uh-huh. And I said, my view on this, it was almost a bit like, well, what game are we playing? Because the assumption is, is that we're playing football and Lionel Messi is the best footballer in the world. But mm-hmm. actually, we might be playing rugby league. And I'm not sure how well Lionel Messi might fare. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know he might be rugby league. But it's like, think about the game we're playing. Like, there's this kind of archetype of the rock star hero founder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and yeah, they do build decacorns. Mm-hmm. But let's forget about that. Let's use unicorn. I mean, there's a reason why people use the word unicorn. It's a mythical <laughs> feature, right? Yes. So, yeah, you get these, these individuals, but they are few and far between. And our business, like, we're very simple people, really, in that 
and we like data. So, and you, I know you like data, so you'll probably be familiar with this, but 80% of UK tech startups exit trade sale um, or to PE for less than 50 million quid, right? So maybe our friends in Northern California have got totally different aspirations, but for one reason or another, I don't know what it is, but in the UK, if you found a tech company and you are lucky enough to exit, eight out of 10 will exit at less than 50 million pounds. Mm-hmm. So that's the pond we're fishing in. You know, we 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 kind of know that well if we if we if we come in at inception with a founder, maths wise, we're probably buying in at a six hundred thousand pound post money valuation. If we exit for thirty million pounds, then we've had a fifty times return on money, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> which we're pleased with. So they're the tra- types of ventures we're trying to build. We're trying to build mm-hmm. ones that we know we can exit within our environment we don't want to have to change that environment um so that's what we're doing so we the rock star superhero founder who wants to do everything his own way and runs through walls and all that they'd probably hate our business model you know they really they probably go you're going to stop me from selling this for a billion pound and we're like well sorry about that you know this is just sort of how we work so uh-huh. So it's really important for us. By, by the way, if any of our founders are listening to this, I do think that they are all rock stars. And <laughs> <laughs> There's different types of rock stars. Exactly. Different, different types. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Team players. We're, we're, yes. You know. You know. The Fab Four, the Beatles, would be a good example. You know, everyone had their part to play. But in, in all seriousness, we definitely have a way of working. Our data shows it works both for investors, but also for founders. And if we find the right founders who can work with us, uh-huh. then, yeah, then then good things, great things happen, in fact. And we, you know, even beyond that selection period, we're mentoring founders. So we have almost like, a, we have a job role within our business called Business Growth Mentor. Uh-huh. Um, sometimes they're Nova employees, sometimes they're external people who we know and like who had previous exits and, I suppose the analog in the old world of venture capital or the bigger world of venture capital would almost be kind of a non-exec director that had a particular skill set. But I don't think it's at this stage where lots of things fail. People don't really want to be directors of businesses and, and nor should they. So you can kind of bring in mm-hmm. the same caliber of people and you you use them to advise the founder and that yields fabulous results. I, th- I think Britain's always had this problem where if if you're a director and you've got a bankruptcy on your sort of CV, it's seen as a big blot in the copybook. And it's got better, but it's still not quite uh, gone. No, it, you, it hasn't. And I mean, tell you what, it's a problem. I mean, we've got, I, you know, I've been a director of over 100 companies. Uh-huh. You, you know, over, I mean, and, and not so much many of our corporate, not one of our portfolio companies now, we have a user corporate directorship model, but... There was a point in time where I had like, you know, 40 active directorships. And you know what the data is in terms of startup failure, you know, broadly yeah. in the open market is 90%. Now, our data is a bit better than that, but it's not much better than 50%. Mm-hmm. Yes. So you're still going to have a few bankruptcies on your yeah, CV. Yeah. more than a few, yeah. But that's, <laughs> you know, that's the game we're in. Yeah. Yeah. So naturally you start to wonder, you, you come in, you've got all this guidance for founders and, and support. Presumably they still make mistakes along the way. So what sort of mistakes do you see founders making? 
I don't know. I mean, there's so there's just so, there's so many mistakes to make, isn't there? Mm-hmm. The, the big the big one uh, that people the big tension in our organisation is when do people fly the nest? That that is our single biggest tension because people, you know, entrepreneurs. They, you know, they, they they want to run their own business. They and, don't want to be working for somebody. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And 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 they're not working for us. But at some point, and we acknowledge mm-hmm. that when we maximise the value from selling an asset, we want to actually have as little to do with it as possible because it, it that that's actually better from a value perspective. And I think team forming. So when do founders decide? Right, well, I'm going to hire my own people. That that's the one that is difficult to get right because it it's shit gets real from a from a runway and cash burn perspective then mm. you know once you've had a couple of people then you are you can't come back to Nova and go well I've not quite got this right yet can I just turn my development team off for four months um that's the bit that I think is 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 hard to get right and do people, so do you think it's a case of people tend to leave too soon or they leave too late? Or do you see both? I'm not seeing anyone leave too late. <laughs> <laughs> it's natural, isn't it? It's, it's, it's you know, I, I started my own business because I wanted to be in charge of my own destiny, you know, and everyone is the same there. And the right people are prepared to make compromises, Mm-hmm. And you tend to find the right people, but still, that's where you know you, people have got to get that right. And in terms of mistakes, I, I mean, I, I, you know, it's difficult. I, I'm, I'm by mm-hmm. no means saying that our founders don't make mistakes. There's just so many mistakes made that it's hard to catalogue them all. It, and, it, and are these is nature of they're more specific, or there's very few generalizations that you can draw out of it, or? there's none that spring to mind the one as i say the one thing that i think is a tension for us is always about when's your team form when's when your team form mm-hmm. and, is, and is that a function of your decision or do you, is that something of saying right okay who funds that who funds this team you need to get external can they get external funding and that's yeah and if they can we'll we'll then put some money in and you, you know so it's never a decision it's a reality it's like can can this happen you know um, and by the way, we've got some fabulous businesses that have team formed successfully. You know, that, that mm-hmm. health tech business, Accurate, is team forming. And we've got another one. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a telemedicine, veterinary telemedicine business, Vidivet, um, team formed really successfully over the, over the last 12 months. So it's just the timing of it is, is, um, is, is difficult. I think, you know, the key thing, I mean, come on, we, like we know that all of this is about managing failure. You know, it's about, mm-hmm. you've got to, you know, anyone who, 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 you know, who never made mistakes, never made anything. So there's going to be loads of mistakes. People are going to fail. They need to fail fast and move on. The, mm-hmm. the trick is to make sure that none of them prove fatal. <laughs> you know? And I think our, our model... What do you mean by fatal? I, business ending. <laughs> business ending for Nova or business no, ending for, for, the, for, the, for that particular company. For that particular company, yeah. And, you know, if you look at, there's, there's a, if you look at the, the reasons why startups fail, there's five or six main ones. So mm, yeah. you know, people, they, the biggest one of all, they build the wrong thing, right? So they have an idea, they build a product and realize that no one wants it, right? And our approach totally prevents that from being able to, be able to happen. People have the wrong co-founders and 
they hire the wrong people. Now, for me, that's the same thing. It's a people issue. And again, we mitigate that massively because we've got a great team. We know they can deliver. Mm-hmm. We, yeah, we miss hire like other people, but it doesn't, yeah. doesn't matter if we miss hire a marketeer because there's not, you know, there's another nine in the team or, you know, or, sorry, an engineer. There's another however many in the team. Um, it matters if a startup makes their first hire and it's the wrong, mm-hmm. their first yeah. engineering hire and it's the wrong hire. So, yeah, we have disputes with our founders as their co-founders, but it's a lot. We've mitigated a lot of that kind of co-founder employee risk. The other one I think is um, a big one is is continuity of capital. Mm-hmm. So it's this whole, you know, a startup raises a certain amount of money. It's got a certain time frame within which to do or die. And if you don't do, you die. And we mitigate that massively because we go, well, we're going to fund this runway that should allow you to prove X. If you don't prove X within the runway, we're not going to give you any more money, but we're going to turn your resources down. And if it takes you another four months to come back with, with X, that's fine. We'll dial you up again. In any other scenario, the, the backers of that company have got a really difficult question. In yeah, do, do they inject more money or not? Yeah, do we inject more cash or do they let, do they let the, the business fail and, and lose their money? Mm-hmm. So we, we, have, we mitigate that. So I think the big reasons why startups fail, we, we've kind of looked at and gone, how do we mitigate that? But yes, mistakes, there are plenty. Yeah. So way back at the start of this conversation, you said... You think there's going to be more, your model is going to be, or the venture building model is going to become more and more common. You sort of discuss a lot about what it is. Why do you think it's going to become more popular? Well, I think there's a, there's a load of reasons. I think I think there's a polarization of capital. Mm-hmm. So um, fund managers are either moving up the market, they want to do bigger deals and you want to do less of them, or they want to move down the market because the typical Series A points becoming too competitive. So you've got big, um, people who are used to doing big deals, they're from a kind of corporate finance background, coming down the food chain because they want to get in earlier. Sorry, of, of the half that are coming down rather than the half that are going up. They, and uh-huh. they, they want to get in earlier. And they're realizing that they don't have the know-how or the tooling or to make decisions at that earlier stage when things are pre-revenue. And they're looking for for an angle, they're looking for a mechanism to allow them to do that. Presumably for these guys, going and starting an accelerator or an incubator might actually be easier than building a venture builder. Um, I don't, I mean, that's an interesting hypothesis. But I mean, (laughs) and are they, but is is an accelerator or an incubator as performance as a venture builder? Um, I I haven't seen any stats. Yeah, exactly. And And what I know is that, so... Incubators started proliferating earlier in my career. So when I was mm-hmm. probably 20 years ago. And it was at a time when the things that it provided were important. So internet access was a problem and shared office space was a problem. And that's kind of what they started out as incubators. And they laid on some other mm-hmm. services. But before I knew it, you, incubators were everywhere. Every university had one. Every city had one. And and that happened just at the point where actually you thought, you know what, we broadband and my house is pretty good. And, mm-hmm. you, you know, it's almost like they, there was an explosion of them just at the point where they became useless, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and accelerator programs, Y Combinator is the definitive accelerator mm-hmm. program. I'm not entirely sure what magic they work over there, but I, ha- I think it have it, 
part of it has something to do with their alumni being worth about a trillion dollars. <laughs> so I think what Y Combinator are really providing is massive access to capital for things that uh-huh. come through their program. And I don't see many other accelerator programs offering that. And we've had a few portfolio companies go on accelerator programs and they look a bit spray and pray. Well, no, 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 that's not right. What they look like, they look great for the accelerator program runner. It's like, come to us. We'll take you somewhere sexy like Amsterdam for 12 weeks. Um, you've only got to give us uh, 9% of your business. And in week 12, we're going to have a demo day and we're going to put you in front of a load of investors. And what they tend to do when they're in the marketing is go, well, we've raised you know, a, a, you know, 500 million for um, our portfolio uh, or, our, or people who've been through our program. And they tell you we've had 2,000 people through our program over the last four years. What they don't tell you is the spread of capital amongst that. Mm-hmm. You ask them and they never tell you. And it's a numbers game for accelerator providers. They take people through like a nice snazzy program. You pick up loads and loads of 8 and 9 and 10% from things. They stick people in front of a group of investors and their job is done. And 99% of the things that go through their program never get invested in. Um, and the ones that do, well, they own 8 9 or 10% off. And I, I don't think they're... It's probably all sorts of people who hate me for saying this, but I don't. I don't think the transformational for the sector really. I, I I think there's a wide range. I think there are some that are very good, and I know one or two that have very good reputations. By reputation, it's very variable quality, and I think I've I've heard similar accusations raised to you know not the whole accelerator sector, but certainly part of it. I, do you know? And you're right. And, I, and actually, and I should caveat what I'm saying with that. There are some great ones. But it's a bit like the incubator situation, right? Where before you knew it, they were everywhere. There was an explosion. Of <laughs> Most of them were pretty useless, right? And it's the same. I mean, good God, if any if, if any founder came through our program and went, I'm really thinking about coming on your program, Andy. Um, I really, really want to build, build a venture with Nova. But I've been offered onto um, Y Combinator's program. I'm not sure what to do. I go, well, I think you should go, go to, to, y to Y Combinator, to be honest. <laughs> so, so, you know, the, but I think accelerators are, are varying quality. And there, there are, I suppose the more, more, they're a big numbers game. I think, you, you know, you, you need like an awful lot through in order for some uh-huh. winners, for you to be exposed to some winners. That doesn't work for early stage venture capital. You need to, um, you know, you, you're actually, you've got some money that you're going to deploy it's too broad. I also, I think, if you look at the data about the proliferation of startup studios, venture builders, they're massively growing. Uh-huh. Um, and you look at the data that's available, and more and more data is becoming available, they outperform the market. And, I mean, it's hard for me because it just makes sense to me. That, I mean, we started doing this 15 years ago because it made sense. Uh-huh. And, and then I suppose the last thing is kind of noises that I'm hearing in the market, you know, of people going, oh, yeah, we're thinking about building a venture builder. And, we're, you know, so I, I, we're definitely going to see more of them. I think we're going to see more. Like places that don't have venture builders that I just can't believe, like universities, they're IP rich. They're terrible at spinning out IP. Um, uh-huh. Or in the main, they are. There's obviously some really good ones on it, and they, they, they should be perfect for it. They're well resourced, and the problem that they have is from t- turning IP into business that utilizes that IP. 
And that, that's just perfect for, for the venture building space. So I think we'll see more of it there as well. Yeah, there's obviously a few EIS fund managers who kind of operate in that spin-out space. And it's kind of interesting chatting to some of them about the things that they do. And sometimes they're the ones that they've go in and say, okay, day one, we need to bring some commercial knowledge. We need to change this yeah. company in some way because you've got this academic who's great and got this other expertise, but... He's a fabulous chief scientific officer or a fabulous chief medical officer or a fabulous chief research officer, but that's where it ends. So what I'd like to do now is move on to our favourite questions. Um, so some of these I think we, we asked you before. Yes. So we'll see if your thoughts have changed over the last two and a half years. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the most recent publicly announced investment you made and why do you make it? So we, we don't do a lot of publicity around our, right. our investments, or not that I'm aware. Our marketing team might kick me now. They might be going, Andy, we do all sorts of stuff. Anyway, I don't make a big song and dance about them. Um, we, we made a series of investments. I think we backed, we followed on in 13 of our portfolio companies in Q4 mm-hmm. last year. Yeah, yeah. You, 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 your fund tends, I think, closes and you do re- several tranches yeah, we, together, we'll, we'll deploy four times a year. Yeah, and we'll we'll try we'll have open deals. It's our model's different. You know, we, we we've got open deals with companies. We'll deploy into them. Um, so so we, we did thirteen in Q four last year, mm-hmm. and I think two of the ones that I'm excited about. I'm excited about them all, obviously. And I you know, I hate trying to pick winners as well because we're, mm. you're, you're so early. <laughs> But the, the ones that, I'm, that I like are that, that probably the two, and I've been able to refer to them anecdotally because I'm close mm-hmm. to them at the moment, is Accurate yeah. and Vidivet. So I think they're definitely going places. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, hopefully they they do. Yeah. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from it. There's been there's been loads of times that that um, that we failed, and there's been loads and loads of learnings. And I think you know just hark back to what we we started out talking about i talked about the first startup i was involved mm-hmm. in and we failed and then within a week we were like actually that was a fabulous experience and we learned so much and we kind of went again i think the biggest thing i've learned you've got to stay in the game as a, as a founder you've got to stay in the game you've got to go again mm-hmm. and we we try and help people find that mindset as well so the problem with businesses is they are cash flow dependent. When the cash runs out, the business fails. But you might have had 99% of things going tremendously well, if, if mm-hmm. that makes sense, but you just haven't yeah. managed to sort your cash flow out. Look, that's terminal. And there's not many other things that are. I mean, you can maybe you'll have a competitor entrance or you realize you've infringed someone's IP. Or, but even in any of those situations, if you look back retrospectively, you'll go, oh, that, oh, that bit was great there. Mm-hmm. And you just need to pivot. People talk about pivoting in startups quite a lot. I think mm-hmm. people don't do it unless they're at the point of failure. So I think the thing I've learned is that when things get really tough and people, want, and you, you, people are tempted to throw their hand in, it's like, don't. Mm-hmm. Like, let the wheels fall off, but be prepared to pick up some of the bits and put the wheels back on and go again. Yeah, I've had a couple of managers on the podcast who have said similar things where there's they they can turn things around in a sense or do that, but things need to get so bad before it forces the founder to actually make that hard decision. Yeah, and also 
Yeah, and it's, it's awful as well, actually. And it's happened recently with one of our founders. And you kind of had to, you can't gift someone that experience. Do, do you know what I mean? It, they, yeah. It's not to like, it's got to happen. And yeah. then you phone them up a week later and go, how are you feeling? And they're like, well, a bit shit, but it's not, it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be, actually. And you're like, right, well, what are you doing next? What, what are we doing mm-hmm. now? Oh, right, are we doing something? And I'm like, well, what's stopping? Like, what, why would we not? What's stopping us? You've still got a half-decent product. You still, you, you know, and I think that's the biggest thing I've learned. And I think sometimes people sit there and they go, oh, no, that was so, so wasteful. There was so much that was good about that and it's gone wrong. Well, the only thing that's wasteful is if you choose not to do something with that, mm-hmm. choose not to do something with that experience, really. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing that I've learned. You, mm-hmm. you've, you know, you've got to stay, you've got to stay in the game and you've got to go again. So the EIS and VCT industry that we're working is great in many ways. Last time, I think we had a long conversation about trying to put it to rights. Um, <laughs> what's in your mind at the moment about how you'd like to change it? Oh, how long have you got? I, think. <laughs> I mean, we've spoke, yeah, you're right. We spoke about this before. And I think, like you already, I think you already know I am a disruptor. That's my mm-hmm. natural personality type. Yeah, I'm like great in the room when you want to throw everything up in the air. I'm great in the room when you're trying to pull the pieces back together and go, right, we're going to go in that direction. Mm-hmm. But don't have me around while people are executing on that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I look at our industry and... And this is a not, I'm, you know, not casting dispersions at anyone who's in it. It's just the shape of where we are. Mm-hmm. I, to call it a cottage industry would be a massive compliment, right? I, I mean, I think we are, compared to where we could be, we are sat round in huts making arrowheads out of flint, right? Is where, is, is, is where we are. I mean, I, I look at the macro level of it. This, this, we, we could we could do something that's wholly tremendous with, within this industry without having to pull too many levers, I, I don't think. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, I'm an entrepreneur and I'm fabulously yeah. optimistic about things. <laughs> I, I kind of look at the supply and demand side of our industry, right? Now, you've heard me talk about Bowhurst's data before, and I know you have your yeah. own view. And the, the, my, the big one I talk about is that they've for, People who aren't aware, they've wrote a couple of papers where they've looked at data across several hundred companies over the last 10 years, um, mm-hmm. and they've looked at the val- the growth in value of EIS-compatible, unlisted com- tech companies. Mm-hmm. And I think they drew a conclusion a couple of years ago that if you if you if there was like an index link track a mm-hmm. product that allowed you to invest in them. Well, a couple of years ago, they reckoned you'd have had 34% growth year on year. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think we had a previous guest who was a sponsor of one of the sponsors of that report. Uh, so if you go back to a couple of episodes ago, Graham Schwickard, I think he spoke about some of this. Was he talking about power laws? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I listened to that with interest, yeah. And, um, and I'm totally with him as well on the power law thing and portfolio size, and he, he's absolutely dead right. Yeah, I think the recent iteration says it's only 28% year-on-year growth now, mm-hmm. you know. Which, <laughs> so so let's just, like, just let's just say it's 20%. Let's just go, well, maybe the, the numbers, but mm-hmm. let's just say it's 20%, right? Now, I'm sure you've done some modeling around this. I have. Um, and we've also done our own modeling. But, you know, given that, if you just look at EIS, 
if I put my money in and I get 30p in the pound back, but then I see a 20% growth on the pound year in, year out for the next seven years, but half of the things are back fail and I get another 15p in the pound back off all of those as well. And I reinvest all that. And then I go again. Well, it, it looks a lot better than the pension. You know, in terms of a mechanism for, for mm-hmm. long-term saving, it looks a lot better than the pension. And you look in this country that pensions, and hopefully this changes, but pension funds can't invest in startups. They find it very difficult to invest in venture capital or private equity in the UK. Mm-hmm. When you look in America, it's completely different. We're all heavily exposed uh, to where all the growth is, which is what we like pensions to do with, but you can't in the UK. Mm-hmm. Now, how many AIS managers are there? Is there 60, 70? Um, slightly less. There's about 60 or 70 products. Some people have multiple products. Right, so, so there's probably about, if you include VCT managers, and, yeah. and, and we might as well, then yeah, yeah. You, you're probably 70. So yeah, you'd say 30, 40, 50, 60, 70. It's not a whole load of, you yeah. know, a whole load of, loads it's of under 100, certainly. Yeah, 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 you know. And I told, sorry, what was your guest's name you talked about, Paolo's? Uh, Graham Swickard. Graham, Graham Flickard. So Swickard. Swickard, right. So he's dead right. And, and and it depends on whose maths you want to use, but broadly, um, you, you need a portfolio of, depending on who you're listening to, 27, 35, or 100. But, you know, mm-hmm. but it's not five, right? And it's not 10. And it's a big number. Now, what I don't understand, right, given that we are in a technological age, I mean, people are talking about Web 3.0 at the moment. And as an industry, we, I'm tempted to say mainly back tech companies. I, why as an investor can I not, why, why is there not technology that's just allowing me to back all of these managers? Like why isn't there a platform where I'm going, right, well, I want to invest a hundred grand, you know, upload it, click uh-huh. a button and say there's, let's keep it simple. Say there's 50 managers, they all get two grand of my money. And then suddenly I've got a diversified portfolio of 250 assets. Why is that difficult? Like, why, 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 is, why are we not as an industry able to do that? Right? Because if we did, and then going, right, okay, I don't need to do any thinking about this. I put my money in, I click the button, and then every year I do this, I'm getting another couple of hundred assets. Yeah, I might get a little bit of, I might be reinvested in a few. Mm-hmm. I'm probably few totally yeah. multi-sector, multi-stage, and I've got one eye on this Boer's data going, right, well, that's going to do 20% year on year. You know, I remember I was speaking at an event and I said something like this. And and one of the one of the other fund managers came up to me afterwards and said, well, that's very funny, Andy. You can tell you're a socialist. Sounds like a bit like communism for me. <laughs> you see, what are you on about? I thought, like, you know, go and ask, go and ask BlackRock or Vanguard whether they're <laughs> communists, right? It's called an index tracker, right? Yeah. So what I can't understand why as an industry we've not created one of those. That's on Well, we did have Cuba and Yeah, we did actually, yeah. And and, and obviously Cuba failed. And it's not clear whether that was to what extent that was because of the model, whether people were failing to buy into model, whether they failed to execute it properly, or whether there were fees. So you know, it might not be that people dislike this idea. It's one implementation of it. And I think a whole mm-hmm. load of people, and the thing is, it's proprietary, isn't it? Because obviously Kubo is a private company, but yeah. a whole load of people could pick over the bones of that. And I think it'd be really interesting. 
But I don't understand why. I mean, we've got a trade body. We've got, you know, the Enterprise Investment Scheme Association. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a good starting point. We should just, you know, build, build one there. You're right. I think fees, fee transparency, duplication of fees could well well be an issue. I'm not saying there aren't problems. Mm-hmm. But, you know, look, you know, this is... I'm, I'm a big picture type person. I'm trying to find other people to help me solve the problems. But that should be aspirational for our industry mm-hmm. on the supply side. Coming back to why the reasons maybe why Cuba failed, I think demand is a big problem. Demand side is a massive problem. Yeah. And, you know, talking through some of the numbers around that, because I like numbers, I think at its height we've had $2 billion invested in EIS in any given year in the UK. And I think in the last year it was $1.6 million. And... But the average check size seems about the same. It's about £40,000 and 40,000 high net worths mm-hmm. invested that forty grand, which gives us the $1.6 There are 800,000 high net worths in the UK of the similar profile to the 40,000 who invested who could take advantage of those tax reliefs. So just doing the simple maths, demand side, there should be £32 billion of demand so, yeah, you could get it 20 times Yeah, yeah. just just from that without just, really... Yeah, that's just... And I know that's a fag packet and there's probably all things wrong. Mm-hmm. But let's, just, and let's face it, no one ever gets 100% market penetration. Yeah. But let's say it was 20%. It's, it's north of 6 billion a year rather than mm-hmm. 1.6. So anyone who's a fund manager who's going, oh, well, I'm not worried about this because these guys might market a bit better than me and get 20% of my money. That You know, it's... We can grow this market. There is an order of magnitude, like mm-hmm. growth ahead of us in, in demand. Yeah. And the product, if it's an index product, should be fabulous for, for, for the end you know, consumer. The 800,000 would end up becoming more than that. Um, because actually what would happen, the FCA, rather than having to say like lovely things like at the top, don't invest unless you're prepared to lose all your money. Mm-hmm. They'll, stop, they'll stop having to regulate like, it's a single EIS investment or a single SEIS investment where I think people are dead right. You could lose all your money. If, if, they, were, if they were giving guidance on a product where you invested and you were across 200 assets, that, that, that guidance is null and void. It's not correct anymore, which then means you open up the market further. Mm-hmm. But, but then you're a bit like, well, why doesn't this happen? And again, it's the reg- it's regulation and it's education. We- we've got 30,000 financial advisors in the UK or thereabouts. Only 3,000 of them even talk to their clients about, about EIS. I've heard lower figures. People think there's only about 1,000 who write meaningful who, business. Yeah, who write business. And I'm sure, I'm bad, you know, I'm, as I say, I, I was a software engineer. I came to this industry quite late, but I didn't understand about panels and umbrella organizations and compliance and and you know if i was going into wealth manager and they didn't talk to me about eis because they couldn't get professional indemnity insurance to sell it (laughs) and i was right in the in the in the income category where i had the right to bet i'd be horrified i'd be like there's nothing independent about you and you're not (laughs) you know you're not giving me the best advice but you know let's set that aside for a moment The, Mm -hmm. the point is is that we've got as you're saying, I, I think 3,000 talk about it. It's only 1,000. It's like 3% of the market who are talking to their customers about this. And we've, we've got to change that. That's got, and, yeah. and I think that comes back to the regulator again. I think it's difficult. They make it difficult for people to recommend it. They make the insurance difficult, et cetera. But 
I think that I think there's a degree of chicken and egg here because at the moment lots of advisors are reluctant to recommend it because they actually don't recommend it. So they know it takes a bit more work than other areas. They say to themselves, well, actually, I'm only going to do it to these two or three of my clients to do all that effort for the, and they're probably the most valuable clients, admittedly, but to to go to that effort just seems a bit disproportionate. Whereas I think, you know, coming back to the white, risk plug my own work, the white paper, which you guys so kindly sponsored, showed that it should be a, a normal investor used to work about high net worth. People need cash to invest, but at the same time, even you know, people think it's it's a high risk product, so it's only high risk investors who can put into it, and it's not. It's, it's not. diversified, so you can put it in. You know, people, a normal risk, normal person should have some of it in their portfolio. It's people who work for me, right? it's people who work in Nova who are going, and you know, they might in like fifty grand a year. They're a software engineer, you know. And um, how can I put some of my money in the in the co-foundry SEIS fund? I really, you know, I'm, I'm paying fifteen grand in income tax. I quite like to get fifty p in the pound back, and I love some of the companies in the portfolio. Uh, and the answer, and I'd love to be able to put £100 a month in, you know, out my wages. And the answer is, um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry, Lisa, you, 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 you can't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I work here. Yeah, I know. But um, unfortunately, you don't hit the eligibility criteria. Yeah, yeah. And, and this, you know, I mean, you mentioned there something, and I'm going to put this out there. There is one manager I've seen who's got a regular saving scheme for yeah. the PCT. Well, That's it. You'll know, Brian. We tried to introduce we tried to introduce mm-hmm. a, a regular savings mm-hmm. scheme for um, um, for, for our EIS product, and actually, mm-hmm. we've got one investor. Plus, <laughs> this they, they invest. I think it's a thousand pound a month with us, and they have done for mm-hmm. two years. And I think he, he's actually involved in your organisation. <laughs> 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 but that, but, you know, because we thought the same. We were like, hang, mm-hmm. hang on a minute. You know, surely there's a target audience of people who've maxed out the pension. And they need some, they want to put something somewhere on a monthly basis. They're in the right tax profile. It should be a no-brainer. But it's just difficult to affect that sort of change. And, and I look at it like really at a macro level. Oh, the, the industry we've got, there is definitely like it, an opportunity to scale 10%. Sorry, not 10%, 10-fold, 10x scale, probably a 20x scale. And we've got all the parts for like a, a, a long-term savings instrument. You, we've got an aging population. We're going to have financial problems to do with an aging population saving for its future. There's ca- the pension fund caps, and it, there's another fabulous long-term savings kind of scheme mm-hmm. that's available for the nation here that would also supercharge the, the UK's tech industry by an order of you know factor of twenty. And uh, you know, do you know anyone at the Treasury or at Bees? Because I, if 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 you, I mean, I don't mind sitting down and talking. I can tell them exactly how to do it. But unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> it's someone at that level that mm-hmm. we, we, by by one way or another. And you know, sometimes it's, you feel like it's more by accident than design. We've got all of these fabulous components mm-hmm. that we could create this amazing thing from, but, I, but just because it's not joined up, it's not it's not happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One one thing that occurs to me as you say that is, you know, you look at a lot of businesses and while if I went to a fund manager and say, how would you feel about getting 10 times the fund under management? They would, of course, say, yes, please give me the money. Mm. I think that is a genuine issue for a lot of fund managers and that they, if you said, 
right, you're going to get 10 times the inflows, particularly the medium or large ones, they suddenly have to find 10 times yeah. the deal flow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, like, let's face it, this isn't, mm-hmm. this is not an overnight change, is it? Yeah, you, you, okay. You, 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 yeah. Look, this is a 10-year programme to get to have a tool. No, maybe not, maybe 10. Yeah, let's say 10 years. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, an incremental change, isn't it? But mm-hmm. if you look at what's happened over the last 10 years, have we rattled around between 1.6 billion and 2 billion? Uh-huh. You, I don't, yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. So there's not been any material growth in the market. And in fact, maybe it's dipped a little bit and people might blame that on Brexit and COVID. But yeah. right, it's typical factors, but yeah, yeah there's all it's, of it's, it's not gone up and to the right with mm-hmm. any in any degree that would be acceptable to one of the fund managers who <laughs> <You know, laughs> the business in their portfolio. Yeah. Yeah. People would take time to be able to deploy those levels of capital, but they'd have the time. Yeah. Okay. It's, yeah. As you say, overnight change is very unlikely. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But we should have this. It should be. Who owns the vision for the industry? Who owns the vision? And mm-hmm. is there a 10-year vision? And should the 10-year vision be that actually everyone in the UK who can benefit from this um, tax scheme knows about it, is advised mm-hmm. about it, is able to invest in an easy manner, distributed across multiple fund managers, building a, a, a massively diversified portfolio. Is is that a vision statement for the future for the industry? And if so, who owns it? And then who's gonna who, who's then gonna do the, the the lobbying of various groups? Because it is probably the Treasury and the well, it's, it's probably just the FCA actually. Well, <laughs> well, maybe maybe you know we we've been through a phase where I think the last two or three years. The main priorities of the trade bodies have been: we've had the sunset clause, yeah, the sunset, getting that removed, yeah, and and the focus is on let's let's get that removed, and bar, bar dotting the i's across the d's, we've still yeah. got to get the legislation. Yeah, touch words, touch words. Yeah, very yeah. keen to point out that there's still yeah. more work to be done there. So, so by the way, don't I'm, not, I'm not saying that they're doing a bad job. You know, I think they've done a good job, and that was really important. Yeah, but maybe but, now they can move on to sort of saying, well, okay. Something like this is right. I, I know. I know. ESA have done the Ready Steady Grow shows, which is a start. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and hopefully, maybe there'll be more of this. Mm, yeah. So I know you're as, as avid a reader as I am. Is there <laughs> any books out there that you like and really recommend? Do you know what? I've, I've, I've actually I've fell out of love with consuming whole books lately. Okay. I'm honest. I think it's like my my. Um, Phone addiction. Do you know? I think we're just getting used to <laughs> consuming snippets of content and reading blogs. Mm-hmm. And stuff. But uh, a book that I really like and would recommend, um, "The Grapes of Wrath" by John Steinbeck. It's a fabulous oh, yes. book. Yeah, long time uh, full since hardship, but also progress, learning, moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a great, that's, that's a fabulous book. Timeless. I suspect you possibly meant a business book. Um, I, I'm open to any suggestion. Any, any book, yeah. Well, I, I reckon everyone should read The Grapes of Wrath. I think it's, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's good. As I say, I read a lot of blog posters, but but I, I think, but I think if people want to understand, I, I've probably used a lot of vocabulary that's not venture capital investing centric today. I, you know, mm-hmm. probably start, talked a lot about what happens within startups and venture building, and the lean movement has probably come up again and again. Mm-hmm. I think anyone who wants to really understand venture building and i think what's really going on in in between inception and series a in businesses you need mm-hmm. to understand lean and i think anything 
like Eric Reese's book, The Lean Startup, is almost like the, 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 the classic. But but he's predated by, I think, a mentor of his, Steve Blanc, who uh-huh. wrote Four Steps to the Epiphany, really heavy going. But there's a canon of, of, of reading. And I'd recommend any people read anything from Ash Moyer, who wrote Running Lean and Scaling Lean. Um, and also there's a company called Strategizer that's got a guy called uh, Alex Osterwalder who invented the business model canvas that Eric um, Ashmoyer then plagiarized mm-hmm. um, into his his canvas. Mm-hmm. Um, but anything from Alex Osterwalder and Strategizer is really, really good as well. Um, there's probably four or five books that you read them and you'll get it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, th- I think I've read one of them so far, so yeah. there'll be more in there, I'm sure. So finally, what do you wish you knew when you started with Nova that you know now? I don't think I realised that what we were actually in many ways doing, part of what we were doing is trying to change how a whole industry perceives mm-hmm. how an asset class should, should be built and managed. Like we've, we've found ourselves doing something that is very different to what's normally going on in startup in the UK. The whole venture building approach is different. And then consequently, our investment fund, Nova Growth Capital, has got a very different story to tell. Mm. And it feels like we're doing a lot of re-educating. And I think we didn't know that we were going to be doing that. (laughs) And I don't think we realized how resilient that we were going to have to be ourselves and our team to, to to go on that journey. Yeah, no, I've got a bit of sympathy. That's you know, I, 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 one of my pet hobby horses is, is is trying to change the industry perspective on tax breaks versus investments, and I want investment led rather than tax yeah, yeah. led approach. And and yeah, the industry is set set in although it's not a big industry, it's it is set in its ways in a lot of ways. I think. Yeah, it absolutely is, and but you know, it's the, I think it's it's you know, you know, it's all like. Well, do you know what? I'd say probably 20 years ago, it was full of white middle-aged guys. But, mm-hmm. but they're all 20 years older now. I'm <laughs> 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 like, you know, I'm a white middle-aged guy. And so I think, that, and the way that business has been done, it, we've got an aging, an aging population of people within the industry. But wealth is predominantly contained within the older echelons of society as well. And people don't embrace change. And it's 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 difficult. And I think, I mean, I take your point about trying to get people to be investment-led rather than tax-led. But the difficulty is, what's the point? The point of egress for 99% of investors is that they've got a massive tax bill. Uh-huh. You, you, you know, that's where the conversation starts. Uh-huh. You know, they sat down with their advisor going, Christ, have you yeah. seen my tax bill? What can I do about this? Well, sometimes what I say to advisors is that for the compliance perspective... Yeah. The, here's the investment stuff. This is what underpins a sound compliance approach. Yeah. And then when you got the actual customer, yeah, the tax breaks, the, the, the initial selling point that you might start on and saying, oh, and by the way, it improves your portfolio diversification too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Neat, eh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I feel you pain. Try, trying to change the, the mindset of a very established industry is difficult. But we've got to wake up to the fact that, like, the, the world is changing mm-hmm. rapidly. Yeah, and we've got to we've got to take advantage. Our industry has to take advantage of that change mm-hmm. while lag behind it. I think. Yeah, yeah. 
well, hopefully things will change. Someone, hopefully someone is listening to this and will <laughs> make some, start some steps along the way. Yeah. Um, if anyone wants to find out more about what you're doing at Nova, where should they go? They, they should just reach out to me. I'm, I'm um, Andy at wearenova.co.uk. If you want to learn more about, you know, or invest in even in venture builders or venture building with Nova, just drop me an email and we'll talk. You know, we'll arrange a time to talk. Okay. We'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, and we'll link to your website as well, just for extra. So thank you very much for coming on again today, Andy. Again, I have really enjoyed our conversation. It's really great to see you again. Yeah, well, it's my pleasure again. I've enjoyed waffling on for <laughs> an hour and a half now. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Andy on venture building. He's very thoughtful about how to make things better, and you can see why I enjoyed having him on so much. As usual, you can get full show notes with links at harmonandco.com forward slash podcast. If you like what you hear, please give us a review with lots of stars on your favorite podcast app. You can also subscribe directly on all good podcast services and players or through the link in the show notes. We can be contacted at acquires at harmonandco.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks' time. <laughs>